You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Raley. Uh, if you listen to episode one, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning back in to episode two. Your support means a lot. If you didn't catch episode one, make sure to go and check it out. We caught up with Brett Owsley from the Wisconsin DNR to talk about all the options that sportsmen have here in the state of Wisconsin. It was a really informative conversation, and I, I really hope to have Brett on again in the future. Uh, just a great, great guy. But in today's episode, we're chatting with Mr. Shane Simpson. You've probably heard of Shane from his YouTube channel, Calling All Turkeys, where he chronicles not only his turkey hunting adventures on public land, but also his deer tracking adventures uh, on his playlist called The Cali Chronicles. Uh, maybe you've even heard of him through some stuff that he's done for the National Wild Turkey Federation Uh, Shane is an absolute wealth of knowledge. He is a champion turkey caller. He's an excellent woodsman and hunter. And to be honest, he's just a super down-to-earth and humble guy. You know, this podcast is just getting started. Uh, Nobody in the world knows who I am. Nobody's heard of me. But yet I reached out to Shane and said, hey, I'd love to have you on the podcast. I know you hunt quite a bit in Wisconsin. And he was more than happy to jump on and give me some of his time, give us some of his time, and share some of his knowledge with us. And so super, super grateful for Shane. Glad that he would be able to Um, jump on with us and I had such a great time getting to chat with him. I recorded this episode with Shane right before turkey season started but when it drops we'll have just over a week or so left in the Wisconsin season. Now hopefully you've had a successful turkey season so far. Uh, If you're tagged out already this podcast will help you put some stuff in your arsenal for next year or maybe it'll prompt you to buy one of those leftover tags and get out there and chase some of these birds uh, one more time before the season ends. If you've still got a tag in your pocket like I do, I hope this inspires you to get out there and hunt hard for the time that you have left. Uh, I know I've been out there hunting hard in the heat for the last uh, week. I've had a little bit of luck. I've been in, been on the turkeys, was finally able to connect with one this morning, and I'm going to have one more tag that's good starting tomorrow morning. So I know I'm going to be putting into use uh, some of the things that I have learned from Shane. So, 
uh, I tell you, these late season birds are tough, 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 tough. But I've got a little bit of season left with the next episode. I'm going to recap my turkey season, how that's gone so far. Uh, talk a bit about a couple of lessons that I have learned all along the way. I am a novice turkey hunter at best, but I have learned a lot of really, really tough lessons this year, and I've learned them the hard way. But that's for another time. You're here today to hear from Shane Simpson. So let's jump right to it. On the line with us now is Mr. Shane Simpson. Shane, how are you doing? Doing good. How about yourself? Doing very well. Uh, if people don't know uh, about Shane, tell us a little bit about you. Ooh, uh, that's a long story. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll just try to be as brief as possible. Uh, born and raised in South Carolina. Grew up hunting down there, mostly pri- public land. Love turkey hunting, deer hunting. Uh, 13 years ago, uh, moved up here to Minnesota. Female involved, let's just say that. <laughs> it wasn't work-related. <laughs> That's why I'm stuck in here in this cold state. Oh. Uh, but it's it's nice up here. A lot of hunting opportunities, and so uh, that more than made, made up for it. Um, got into competition calling uh, back in 2009. Uh, started uh, filming hunts and hunting with others and filming their hunts and started putting it on YouTube so they could watch it. And that kind of turned into a YouTube show and, you know, been doing the competition calling still and doing lots of turkey hunting and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of a brief summary. That's good. That's how I got to where I'm at. Yeah. I think a lot of people uh, who have heard of you have probably heard of either Cali Chronicles, Mm -hmm. right? Doing tracking for deer uh, and then also uh, calling all turkeys on YouTube. Is that right? Yeah, they're they're just different playlists on the same YouTube channel. I, if you just look up Shane Simpson on YouTube, um, you'll find my channel. Okay, good deal. Well, I heard you say a couple of uh, weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast and uh, this podcast that we're on obviously is focused on the state of Wisconsin. It's called the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. Uh, so we're going to focus on all things Wisconsin. I heard you talking about turkey hunting on another podcast, and you said that Wisconsin was one of your favorite states to hunt in for turkeys. Why is that? What makes Wisconsin unique? It's 15 minutes away from me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, Wisconsin, in my opinion, just had is a is a role model number one for other states, and it's primarily I'm talking turkey hunting. Mm-hmm. um uh, if you get into other things like deer stuff then there might be uh, uh more at play but uh for turkey as a turkey hunter they have eastern wild turkeys which is one of my favorite subspecies to hunt uh as a non-resident of wisconsin they have uh reasonable license fees for non-resident i know a lot of people like to promote overcharging non-residents because they don't with the air quote pay their fair share but i think they they're getting um, I think the way Wisconsin had it is a fair way to do it. And, um, and they have, I mean, you can pick up multiple tags, leftover tags, the way their system is for tagging the tagging system. You know, you have some hunters that are content with hunting one, a few days and killing one bird and then going off fishing. And then you have guys like me that would like to be able to extend my season and, and maybe have multiple tags and, and hunt throughout you know, all of May as much as possible. And so the way their tagging system set up, it allows for that. You know, the guys that don't necessarily want to hunt as much as I do, you know, they, they can buy one tag and I can get three or four. Um, and there's lots of public land. You know, I'm a public land hunter. And I mean, not only do you have WMAs, you have MFLs and, and CFLs or whatever those other ones called crop. Uh, what are they? CMLs, CFLs, something like that. 
um, managed forest law, uh, volunteer access, public access, VPAs, um, you name it. They have so many different types of public accessible properties. And when you add that all up, there's plenty of public land to go around and allows you to find places with, with light pressure, light hunting pressure. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of times I can go hunting, especially during the week and not see another vehicle because of that fact. And if I do see one, there's another place right down the road. I could go try and hunt. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, that's a few of the factors of why I think it's tops in my book. Yeah. What about, what about the numbers here? So you hunt all around the country. I think I heard you say the other day you killed turkeys in what, 16, 17 States, something like that. Yeah, it's probably close to that. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily try to kill one in every state. Um, I'm not trying to get my, what do they call it? The U S slam kill one in all 49 states that have a huntable population. I basically just look at when state seasons open and how can I fit my schedule to, to, to leave one state and go to another one and the season's already open. So I, I tend to end up hunting the same general states every year, core states. And then I may add one or two new ones each year. And so it's probably somewhere in that area, 16 to 18 states. I'm going to add a couple more this year. And uh, what was your question about? Yeah, just uh, so. Uh, Sorry, in, I got. <laughs> no, that, no, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, so as somebody who gets to travel around the country, you know, a lot of the, what we've been hearing over the last couple of years is that turkey populations are, are going down. Turkey populations are not doing well. Can you speak a little bit to that? And then maybe uh, what have you observed here in Wisconsin in particular? Do you, do you think Wisconsin's being hit with the same thing, or do you think we still have a, a pretty healthy population? It's it's hard to say. Um, I think it's different when you look at public versus private land. Um, I, I know for sure there's a, a downward trend in the populations in the south, the southeast, that sort of thing. Um but like up here, say in Wisconsin, for instance, I see tons of birds, tons of birds when I'm riding around, tons of birds on some of the private lands that um, that I ha either have access to or my buddies hunt. And those appear to be normal. But then the public land, and I didn't hunt it a tremendous amount this past year, it seemed like there was less turkeys or at least less vocal turkeys than there was the year prior. Now, last year was COVID. And there was, I, I saw a lot more hunters out. And so the increased pressure can just make the birds shut up. I saw turkey sign. There was tracks and droppings and all that stuff. So it was obviously still turkeys there. It's just, they weren't being as vocal. Increased pressure will, will cause those birds to move or, or go quiet. Um, I don't think it's a big of, uh, as big a, of a threat or of a concern. I mean, it's always a concern, but it's not nearly in the condition it is down in the South and Southeast. There was South Carolina, for instance, where I grew up is night and day from uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, it was nothing to go out there when I was younger to hear 10 birds gobbling on the public land I hunted. Wow. Towards the, the last time I hunted it or the last few times I heard birds, it would be maybe one bird I'd hear, maybe two at the best. The very last time I was able to hunt that piece of property, I didn't see a turkey track i didn't hear a turkey gobble i didn't see any sign of turkey it was like they just vanished from this one chunk of public and uh the pressure was always there on that public so i don't i don't think it was hunters uh that caused the decline it's obviously something else at work there so i mean think if you're in wisconsin be thankful with the way that the state of the turkeys are right now it's you have a, you're in your golden golden days right now for sure 
Yeah, I moved up here uh, about a year ago to the state of Wisconsin. And, you know, when I first got here, I looked at the the tag system and I, I'd moved up too late. I wasn't able to put in for the lottery. And so I, mm-hmm. I started reading all these regulations. And at first it overwhelmed me, but it wasn't quite as bad getting into it and figuring it all out as I, as I thought it was going to be at first. But uh, I had never really hunted turkeys much before. And the seven years that I hunted in Louisiana before moving up here, hunting for deer and things like that, never really turkey hunting, I saw one turkey the entire, the entire seven years that I was, that I was down there. And I come up here my first spring hunting, I, I get two birds, yeah. you know, fill both my tags and, uh, population appears to be doing, doing pretty well. And, uh, lots of really, really vocal, uh, birds, but you're right. So last year I saw a lot of folks out on public land, which is good. You know, we want people to use the resource, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's good to see folks out. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, I know that lately in the past couple of years i've seen um some complaints online about the number of hunters they they're you know some of the statements you read are i don't believe what the states are telling us that hunter numbers are down or license you know whatever because i'm seeing more hunters on public than i ever did before um i i know that the the number of hunters is is basically remained steady the, as the population has gone up, the percentage of hunters in relation to that has stayed. So you're actually the overall percentage based on the population of uh, the United States, the number of hunters has gone down, but the same amount of hunters are still out there. Mm. If you, if, if that makes sense, what I'm yeah. saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I encourage people that are going to public. I mean, I, I'm, I look at the positive side, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I'm hope, well, I'm hoping that in it, the the I'm stumbling on my words here. I'm trying to, to put it in something easy to say. Um, I'm hoping this uh, creates a movement to preserve our public lands or increase our public lands. And, and I know a lot of people like they enjoy their solitude and, and their little honey hole, and 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 it, they don't have any hunting pressure there, and they don't like the added numbers. But eventually, your little spot's going to go away if we don't protect it. And uh, I think that's one of the big realizations a lot of people, uh, hopefully, they're seeing from this is, hey, there, there's not a lot, there's not enough public land to go around. Maybe I should join a conservation group or some group or or get something started to help preserve what we have and 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 maybe acquire more because it's you know lands a lands something that's never going to be created more of. It's, it's just getting smaller and smaller, it's, it's, uh, particularly huntable lands. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, I was listening to the THP guys the other day. And, um, one of the things that, that they were highlighting is they're trying to get as many folks hunting, hunting land as possible, uh, hunting public land in particular as possible. Uh, and, um, they said that they figured the more people they can get into hunting, the more people there will be to protect it yep, whenever, uh, whenever it's in trouble. And uh, it's one of the things I've appreciated about, uh, living here in Wisconsin. So, uh, I talked with somebody at the DNR the other day and he talked about, you know, they're actively looking to make land acquisitions they're they're actively looking to purchase land when people come to them and say hey i've got this 100 acres or 300 acres or whatever they're doing what they can with the dollars that they've got to uh, acquire more and more public land uh, for people to enjoy not just for turkey hunting but for all sorts of yeah on that on that point uh if you go back to some of my older youtube videos one of the properties i hunt in wisconsin is now uh, a wma oh wow Uh, really the, the the landowner um uh he passed away recently but um talking to me he he would rather seen it be used by the public than to be sold and go to 
uh, in the hands of somebody that's going to exploit it for whatever reason, or just use it for solely, you know, themselves. And, uh, when it came down to it, he said before he died, he was, you know, that's what he decided to do. And he sold it to the DNR and, and it's now huntable by the public. And it's, uh, it was a great thing by him, I think. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. We need more people with that kind of uh, generous spirit uh, looking mm-hmm. to do that kind of thing. That's something we all benefit from. Absolutely. Uh, well, we kind of touched on it a little bit. You know, I think over the last year, more people are getting outside than ever before. I think COVID really pushed folks uh, on a couple of areas. But one was, what can I actually get out and do? How can I get out of my house? Uh, and two, where is my next meal going to come from? Right. So we saw yeah. shortages at the grocery stores and all sorts of things. And, I think that, and toilet paper. Where, what am I oh. going <laughs> to wipe with? <laughs> you know, I haven't seen anybody pick up the hobby of making toilet paper yet. <laughs> you know, I see a lot more folks deciding to go. Uh, oh, I've, got, their own food, I've got a, but... I've got a barrel down downstairs with pul- wood pulp in it. I'm working on a batch. There you go. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll come over. And I'll have you back on the podcast to walk us through the process. Maybe. <laughs> I've got uh, plenty of underwear and, and socks and stuff I can use if I ever run out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's been lots of underwear and socks left in the There's woods, not a shortage sure. of those at the store, is it? <laughs> no, it doesn't appear to be. Not right now. There might be after this podcast drops. I don't know. We'll find out. (laughs) Uh, So I think we've got a lot more guys who are getting into the woods for the first time. Like I said, last spring was my first time really getting after turkeys. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the guy who's just starting out when it comes to turkeys. Now, I'll say it seems overwhelming when I watch guys like you. I watch THP. I watch these folks on YouTube and I'm like, holy cow, the things that they're doing to get after some of these birds. Uh, it, it, it seems like a lot to take in all at once, especially somebody who maybe wasn't raised hunting turkeys yeah. or, or someone who's an adult and doesn't have that, uh, you know, that opportunity as a, as a kid to get out with a family member or whatever. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the guy who's just getting into it. Uh, the first thing I want to touch on is just like with deer hunting, turkey hunting seems to be a really, really gear heavy sport. Like we're marketed to, you need 37 calls and this $300 vest that you go and buy to, you know, and then go sit on this $500 seat and a $300 blind. Uh, What would you tell the guy who's just starting out? What do you need to have to walk into the woods and effectively hunt turkeys? Well, it's, it's only gear heavy if you make it that way. You know, when I was starting out, I went, um, I think after my first year, I saved up my money and I bought my first turkey vest. I think I paid $80 for it at the time. And, um, it had lots of pockets and I wanted, if there was a pocket, I wanted something. If there was a pot call pocket, I was going to buy a pot call to put in there, <laughs> whether I actually needed it or not. I just thought it was the coolest thing. Sure. And every spring I went to the store cause I was excited about turkey season coming up and I was buying more gear. And, you know, like you said, marketing towards turkey hunters, it's easy for them to market towards turkey hunters because we, we, it's, it's, we get excited for the upcoming season and buying gear is something we do to pass the time or to, you know, help with that excitement. But with that said, you can go buy a lot of gear, but you don't need all that, you know, to get started. If, uh, if you're new to turkey hunting and you're new to turkey calling, obviously you're going to need a call that's a little bit easier to run than say a mouth call. Mouth call's got the, the biggest learning curve. Um, a pot call or a box call is going to be your ticket and you don't need two or three of them. If you just want to get one good one, that's fine. That's enough to kill a turkey. Uh, I would also suggest that you do get a, a mouth call and start practicing with it um, because there is a huge advantage to be able to use a mouth call. Even if you're not proficient at it, if you can just make some soft sounds and stuff, 
so that when you're using your box call a pot call that requires hand movement as that gobbler gets closer you're not gonna be able to move so set it on the ground and get your gun ready and just make some soft you know little soft yelps or whatever you can muster um as he gets closer and uh so basically to start off you probably just need a a pot or a box call and, and a mouth call or two mouth calls are relatively inexpensive so uh shouldn't be a problem buying a couple of those um you don't need a big expensive turkey vest it's nice to have a little padded seat i've gotten to the point now i've i've become a minimal minimalist um, if i wasn't carrying camera gear i'd have a mouth call and a shotgun and my owl hooter hmm. that'd be the only three things i'd carry i won't even carry a pad with me to sit on if the ground's wet i'll just sit on the ground um, I don't know if it's just cause I'm getting older, but I find the grounds more comfortable than those padded seats. Sometimes they just seem to uh, make my butt go uh, numb. Um, so if it, it just all depends on how gear heavy you want to get. So I'll start the, the basic minimum is you and a shotgun and have camouflage, uh, obviously, um, try to, I use face paint for my face and hands. You can use a little netted, um, you know, camo face net. So shotgun camo a couple mouth calls a pot or a box call then you can add from there if you want to add a decoy uh, i would suggest if you're just going to get one type of decoy get it like a jake jakes tend to do better than hen decoys as far as pulling that gobbler into gun range with a hen decoy the gobbler can strut out there outside of gun range and display for the hen if she doesn't come to him then he's like oh she's not interested and leave if you have a jake or a male decoy in front of you he wants to run that male decoy or that male turkey off. And in order for him to do that, he has to come, up, you know, come to within gun range of that de or come in to that decoy and be within gun range of you. Um, so the decoy is optional. I, I find myself hunting with one, uh, without one much more these days, especially if I'm hunting in the timber, there's no huge advantage to it, especially if you hide yourself well and make the turkey come look for you um and then like i uh, said you just can grow from there depending on what your budget is or how you want to hunt if you want to add ground blind that's fine um i would actually advise away from using a ground blind if you can help it i think it there's nothing i don't have any negative opinions about it as far as i think it's cheating or anything i think it's uh it it's hurting your experience when you're in a ground blind my daughter hates hunting out of a, hunting out of a ground blind because she can't see as well she can't hear as well uh, we not only can we not hear the turkeys as well and all the other birds as part of nature that's part of the whole experience out there uh, that our calling is dampened when we're calling the, the blind kind of hampers that uh, I think it's just more much more enjoyable experience just to sit beside a tree and feel the warm breeze in the spring and hear all the birds and you know and, and communicate with the turkeys um, but nothing I have nothing against it otherwise I just think it it, it hurts yourself a little bit um you know you can get into expensive expensive shot shells and chokes and all that good stuff it all comes down to how you how much gear you really want to have um that's basically the way to put it but you can you can certainly be successful out there with the bare minimum yeah with not a lot not a lot of stuff so you talked a bit about you touched on a lot of different pieces there uh when it comes to to calls let's say um I've heard you talk a lot about understanding your airflow. Yeah. Uh, you know, mouth calls obviously have a, a, a pretty steep learning curve. I'm currently 
on that learning curve, <laughs> trying to figure out uh, some mouth calls. And when I first heard you talking about understanding your airflow, I thought I just sucked on a bunch of different kinds of calls. Uh, but I thought, man, this one actually works for me or whatever. Talk a little bit about how do you figure out uh, your airflow as an individual and then and then go and, and try to capitalize on that when you're choosing calls in the future. Yeah, so um, I just kind of discovered this by accident um, quite a few years ago. I, I was practicing with my calling and I had learned which calls seem to work better for me just by, you know, every spring I'd buy two or three kinds and the next spring I'd probably buy the same two or three kinds. And, <laughs> and I always end up tossing a couple of them and, and keeping the one that was maybe a reverse combo cut. So I didn't really know why that call worked for me. I just knew, okay, this call sounds better than the other ones. And I got into competition calling and I really had to concentrate and, and, and pay attention to how I was calling and how I was making the sounds. And, and I accidentally hit that front end note, which was the hardest for me to get a nice, clean front end note in my Yelp. I could key key uh, a little bit, but I did it in a different manner than the way I ended up learning to do a front end. And I was on the phone with Scott Hook uh, with Hook's Calls, Hook's Custom Calls. And uh, I was like, Scott, I don't know what's going on, man. I, I hit that front end, but I'm not sure. He said, uh, try hissing like a cat. That'll, that'll kind of help you get your tongue in the right position and i'm not so sure that scott knew anything about airways i think he just that's the, just the way he blew the call and he's able he's mm -hmm. able to blow the call pretty good so i did that and that front end note came out i'm like oh you're onto something i got it and i was like i'll talk to you later i hung up and i went to go practice <laughs> and so i was like what's going on so i held a mirror up to my mouth and i took a flashlight and looked in there you know to see what's going on and i could see that little channel of air form and mine just happened to be off to you to my left. And I, I think what a lot of people fail to realize is we're not all perfect. We're not built perfect. Like your, um, your ear may be bigger than the other ear, you know, we're, we're not perfectly symmetrical. Sure. And so to, to assume that when you blow a call, a mouth call, the air is going to go right down the middle of the call or, or across all the reeds the same. Um, I think that's what gets the reason we have that trouble learning calls. We don't understand that. You know, we're not all perfect. My airflow just happened to be off the left. A little channel of air forms to the left of my, on my tongue. So I went to grand nationals, uh, the grand national calling competition in Nashville. And while I was there, I was, I was like, Hey man, can you blow a clear front note to the competition callers and let me just open your mouth a little bit. I know this is weird. Let me look in there and I'd see their little channel of air forming and depending on what call they're blowing, it matched their airflow. So they didn't really know, but they had learned which cuts work for them you know, based on how the calling sounded. And I was like, yep, that's what it is. Interesting. That's definitely. And so I went home and, and after a while of researching everything, I came to the conclusion of what was going on. And I created a video called mouth call mechanics. And it explains, you know, like your, your top read that has the cuts in it. That's where you get your rasp. Um, the, the next read is where the front end note, the clean note. So imagine when you were a kid, you'd take a, piece, a blade of grass and put it between your mouth and blow on it and get that mm -hmm. high pitch squeal. That's basically what the second read is doing. It's giving you that high pitch noise. And when you put the two together, you get that nice yelp at the front rolling over into the rasp. And uh, it's just a matter of, uh, of relaxing your tongue as you do that and be able to do it uh, quickly. You know, and it, after a while of practicing, it just, it just happens. Just like if you bent down to pick something up, you don't have to think about closing your fingers. It just, you just do it. And, um, so I, I actually shot a video years ago 
filmed filmed inside my mouth me kikiing and yelping and stuff and i don't know where that footage is now i can't find it but uh you could see the little channel of air form and so what i uh in that video i explained the best way to figure out what call is going to work for you is just to take a two read uncut call that way you're not you don't have the top read that's cut to interfere and put in introduce rafts yet you want to you want to learn to put air across the reeds properly to begin with a lot of people will rush this this step and go into a cut call and they, mm-hmm. they you need to get to the point where you can make that nice clear note and and get good at it where you you know a week later you can just toss the call in your mouth and go and you know, blow that nice clear note then you're ready to move on a lot of people would like to practice an hour and then try to yelp and that's where they hurt themselves but anyway after you get learned that front note then you need to look in the mirror and um and blow that you know, blow that call to get that front end note and try to you know see that little channel there this is difficult for people to do because it, it usually requires you to open your well, it does require you to open your mouth a little bit and sometimes it's difficult to blow the call when you're opening your mouth a little bit so in my kit that i created i i put three different other calls in there one with the cut the the top read is cut to expose that second read on the left side one in the middle and one on the right so then you just put each call in there and try to create that front end note again. You're not trying to get rasp yet, but you're trying to see which call allows you to produce that front end note. Hmm. If the if the ghost cut or center cut call works for you, then that's where your air channel is. It is it's in the center, and if the uh, one on the right works and vice versa, you know, so on and so forth. So um, basically, once you go through that whole process and learn which call works for you, so for for myself. I use a, a left, any calls with the left side uh, gap cut in the top read, reverse combos, uh, any call it that I can run a bat wing where it has cuts on both sides. Like because the left side is cut also, I can use those. And and that's probably what a lot of hunters uh, notice is they go to the store and they buy the hand hammer or whatever they call these calls. You know, the, the manufacturer gives it some fancy name or uh, the, the seducer or the gobbler getter don't worry about the name of the call look at the cuts in the top read and you'll notice that hey i seem to favor those ones that are cut to the left my airflow must be over to the left and 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 then you practice on that if you if you try to practice on a call that's not designed for your airflow it'll just make the whole process a lot more difficult yeah i I jumped on some mouth calls last year tried to try to get into using them and i bought one or two uh, not a lot of variety. I just bought this little pack, you know, mm-hmm. that came uh, all together and I blew on those things and I could get nothing out of them. And it was just, it was miserable. I, I ended up throwing both of them away. And then right before Turkey season, I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to give it one more shot. And I just happened to get one that fit my mouth well. And that was the only call I took into the woods with me last year. You know, I, I jumped right on it and was, was able to, I definitely am guilty of rushing it though. Yeah, Like you and said that- here, people jump on and I, I realized uh, in listening to you talk with, um, talk with somebody else. Uh, the reason I was successful last year, I think is, is because I was basically Jake yelping the whole time yeah. I was out there. So. I think with a lot of hunters, they sound like Jake's and Jake yelping is a very effective call actually. So I wanted to also mention that, you know, you said you grabbed a couple of calls, not all call makers use the same tension and the same thickness of reeds. So don't get hung up on one brand or if you buy brand A and you say, oh, it sounds like crap, I'll never use their stuff again. It may it may have been you just had the wrong cut. 
But then again, they may have the right cut for you. And because of the different tensions and different back tensions and different thicknesses of reeds, some calls are more difficult to, to operate because they require more air. Um, okay. So that's another thing you can't get hung up on. A guy that's proficient at it could run those calls and sound good. And you may not because it's just requiring more air and you haven't quite learned how to put air across the reeds properly. Gotcha. So I would suggest not only buying multiple cuts, you know, a left cut, a right cut, center cut type of call, but maybe buy it from several different manufacturers and just test the different thicknesses of reeds and tensions and, and get something you like. I mean, you may grab one that's a left cut from one manufacturer and, and grab a from another manufacturer one that's left cut and you're able to blow one of those two calls or both. Um, so just don't worry about the manufacturer at this point. You're concerned about getting the proper cut. Um, and then you can move forward. Yeah. So you mentioned getting just an uncut two read call as a place to start. And that's going to yeah. help us learn to uh to put the put air across the the reeds appropriately. And then yeah. we can take that next step into yeah. some that are cut. Yeah. If you can't there. if you can't create that nice clear whistle sound of like a key key of a young turkey, it's just mm -hmm. uh, but if you should be able to produce a solid note as a if you can't do that on a two read call, then you're not ready to move forward. Okay. You're not putting air across the reeds properly. That's, that's the easiest call to blow. And, and I know some people are probably thinking, why are you using two reeds? Not why not just one? Um, this is, you could use one read if you, if you're going to make the call yourself or have somebody make it for you in my kit that I created, I did two reads uncut. That's because in the three read, calls the one that has the cut read on top it still has two reeds uncut underneath and i wanted that tone of that clear note to be the same on both i wanted to, i didn't want to add another variable so if anybody's asking that's why you could always have a, a one read uncut and then have a two read with a cut on top and have a single read and get the same effect but if anyone's wondering that's why it doesn't have to be two reads uncut it could be one okay so you mentioned the kit you created is that something that's commercially available yeah, it's on my website, callingonturkeys.com. And um, a, a lot of people like the, once they figure out the call they like, will come back and order. To, to, so the kit comes with the two read uncut. It comes with a ghost cut. It comes with a combo cut and reverse combo. So it covers your uncut and your three different cuts for all sides of your airflow. And then I've had a lot of people buy the kit, realize that a combo cut works for them. And every year they order, you know, two or three combo cuts. And they hunt with those. And so they've, so I, I do, I do keep those in stock for that purpose. Okay. The main reason I created the kit though, was just to help you get your airflow. It wasn't for you to, and now I hunt with the calls too. I hunt with the bat wing that's in that kit. I mean, I, not in that kit, but I take the same, it's the same call constructed and I just make it into a bat wing or I use the reverse combo that's in that kit. I also use the, some calls from hooks as well, but, uh, I mean, they're, they're great calls. It's just, I, when I created the kit, it was to help you discover your airflow or where your channel of air is. And, and that was the main purpose of it, not to sure. get rich or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the money it's in Turkey calls, right? Yeah. I just, it, they don't, they don't cost much. It's basically covering the cost of materials and my time, you know, getting it to you and everything. Sure. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned to uh, a box call and a pot call. I think a lot of people are, are really familiar uh, with a box call. Uh, it's probably one that they've seen laying around in their grandpa's shed or something like that, or something you can pick up at a, at a garage sale, pretty, pretty cheap pop calls. However, um, 
I've noticed a big difference um, when you buy a quality pot call and you buy one that's yeah, not that's so great. Big, I, a huge difference. I, I bought a cheap one last year. So, so talk to me about what am I looking for when I'm buying, let's say, a, a pot call, and I want to, I want one that's a decent quality call. Um, you're not, you're, you're not actually looking, you're listening. Um, okay. and that's going to take experience to, to hear a call and know that it sounds, it has turkey sound in it. That's part of the becoming a turkey hunter too. You, a lot of hunters make the mistake of listening to their buddies. Like, Oh, my buddy sounds good. Wish I could call like him. Mm. Instead, you should be on YouTube listening to real hands and saying, yeah, she sounds real. <laughs> that's who I should be emulating. And one of the other things I should bring up, uh, it's going to be my little soapbox moment here Let's is, do um, don't listen to the guys online that, that tell you, Oh, don't worry about your calling. I've heard hens that sound worse than the hunters. Uh, that's absolutely 100% false. There's not a hen out there that sounds worse than a hunter. I mean, just the fact you're saying that a, a, a turkey that talks sounds worse than a turkey that talks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my point is those guys usually don't, just don't have an ear for turkey. Um, the guys that have hunted a long time can hear a call in the woods and, or hear a turkey in the woods and immediately distinguish between the two. Um, turkeys are turkeys. They sound like turkeys. And if you want to be a great hunter or improve your odds, I shouldn't say you, you're not necessarily going to by default become a great hunter by just being a great caller, but um, it certainly uh, puts uh, odds in your favor when you can emulate what a turkey sounds like and, and all the different um uh, vocalizations they make you know yelps and key keys and little bubble clucks and soft stuff once you get capable and all those it definitely helps but worry about sound like a real hen and i guess i'm off on a tangent a little bit but <laughs> no i'm glad to hear you cover that because i have heard that all over the place especially when i first started okay i'm gonna do some turkey hunting and i'm talking with people or i'm i'm reading online and i saw that repeated a lot uh, you and know, here's, here's the thing though. you'll get a reply from somebody or I bet somebody's listening and say, oh man, I've heard a Turk like that, but here's the thing. There was so many cell phones and so much video out there. There's not a single one posted online of a hen, you know, that sounds worse than a hunter. <laughs> it's That's there's, there's more footage of a Bigfoot out there than it is of a hen <laughs> that sounds worse than the hunter. Yeah. So if someone has footage of a hen that sounds worse than hunter, please share it with me. Cause I'd love to see it, but I have yet to see one. Yeah. Anyway. And, and even if there is one out there or even a couple out there, you know, Somebody across, kicked her in the neck and that's why she sounds so bad. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that you can go out there and sound like her and yeah. be attractive to a gobbler. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. Here's the thing. She can walk and she looks like a turkey. So she can sound rough as could be. If there's one out there that does sound rough, that gobbler sees her. You can sound rough, but as soon as you start to move, that gobbler's out of there. Yeah. She, yeah. she has the advantage of walking around and moving and looking like a turkey. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump in just a little bit more on, on the calls, because this is an area that, that I've been trying to really improve in. And I think a lot of guys uh, could probably stand to, to get a little bit better. I'm heading out to the Turkey woods here in just a couple of weeks. I've got my calls. I've figured out my airflow. I bought a box call that sounds okay. Or I've got a pot call that sounds okay. Uh, what are some of the cadences or, 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 types of calls that I need to be able to, to do out in the woods. Now you listen to, to guys who are up on the stage in a competition and man, they can just, or, or like you, it's like an extension of who you are when you're, when you're on a Turkey call. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm <laughs> never going to be, you know, I'm never going to be that good. So if I wait until I'm at that point to go out in the woods, I'll never get to hunt. Right. 
So what are some of the things that I need to be able to do with that call when I'm out there? Um, you, you don't need to do a, a great deal. I mean, if I was uh, just watching other people hunt and, and things, I think they, they rely too much on just yelping and purring. You see that a lot. They, they're sitting there and for no rhyme or reason, they just go, just they're just making turkey sounds they heard on tv or or wherever i think you need to just uh you can keep it basic but just do turkey talk you know um don't worry about the the purring i think you'll have more success if you can do some cuts cutting and and yelping don't worry about all the soft stuff to begin with sure if a turkey's in the out there goblin yelp to him maybe cut to him you know pop pop yelp 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 you know, listen to a hen, she'll, she'll, pop, 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 pop. and then that gobbler will fire right back. Um, but you rarely hear a hen out in the woods just going, yop, 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 just some, you know, I think um, you don't have to get too uh, um, crazy with your calling, but I think like the yelping and the cutting, those are two standard calls, I think, uh, really um, have better odds of calling that bird in than, than some of this other stuff that uh, people try to teach you to do. Again, you should always continue to uh, advance your education in turkey vocalizations and, and your calling ability if, if, you're, you're, if your goal to, is to improve your odds. But uh, you don't have to do a lot of fancy stuff. But yelping and cutting, I think, is a good place to start. Yeah, and you've got quite a few videos on your channel, uh, correct, devoted to giving tips and that sort of thing, helping folks get better at yeah, there's turkeys. some there's some calling tutorials on there that I did for the NWTF, but I've got them linked in a playlist on my channel as well. Plus, there are some of um, my own or t- tutorials that I uploaded directly to my channel. There's some uh, tutorials on conditioning a pot call, and th- that's a, a thing I'd like to mention before we move on is not only uh, when you get a pot call or a box call is a starter call. But look at look up tutorials on YouTube, uh, for instance, on how to actually hold the call properly and run the call. Uh, a lot of times I see people holding a, the, the striker for the pot call um, in a weird way that it really ha- uh, you know, inhibits the, the call from making good quality turkey sounds. They're not holding the striker properly. They're not holding the pot properly. They're, they got it in the palm of their hand and it's just killing the sound. It's deadening the sound where they should be using it with the tips of their finger holding it. Uh, the box call they're lifting the lid of the box call with each stroke where they just should be sliding it back and forth and it's simple stuff like that that's easy to find tutorials for that will make a drastic improvement in your calling just from those uh correcting those few mistakes right there yeah and the nwtf has got also got quite a a few videos uh on their website with live turkeys so you can get on there and, and listen to that instead of listening to your buddy or or listening to yourself and thinking, oh, I think I'm getting there. Get yeah, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, not to push my website, but I've I've got a quite a, uh, a collection of turkey, not only turkey but owl uh, vocalizations and 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 Jake yelping stuff on my website called All Turkeys um, for that purpose for people to listen to and learn to act, uh, uh, hear actual animals making the sounds and not their buddy. And the yeah. NWTF, like you said, has a, a library of vocalizations as well. Yeah, I was watching. Um, I was watching one of yours. You've got a Jake Yelp on there, and the first yeah. time I realized that I might be making Jake Yelps, I went onto yeah. your website and I went and watched your video <coughs> of a Jake Yelp, and I'm like, oh man, I've been doing a Jake that, Yelp all that year long. Yalky. 
Yeah. And that sounds like a lot like sometimes when people are running a box call has that real yawky uh, sound to it. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I, I, I set up just a quick, quick little story. I set up on a bird last year, got real tight into his, uh, into his roost and I didn't know it, but roosted probably 45 or 50 yards from him or a bunch of hens. They flew down into the field first and he flew down. I thought he was going to go their direction. And, uh, so I started calling and he mm-hmm. turned around and came straight over to where I was and started strutting. And I'm feeling pretty proud of myself. I'm like, man, I just called this tom off of all these hens like well he thought there was a jake coming in from the other direction yep. so uh, it worked in it, my favor but i wasn't making the sound i wanted but, uh, but you also not only could it sound like a jake but you also you're a new turkey to the area mm. and um whether uh this may be news to some people or some people know this you know a turkey can recognize voices just like we can hmm. i mean someone f- you're familiar with can yell your name out and without turning around you know who called your name sure we recognize faces. They can recognize each other also. Wow. And, and I actually have kind of proof of this. I have a twin identical twin brother and I used to have a pet gobbler and he would always try to attack me. I'd come out in the yard, try to feed him. He was just a mean little joker. <laughs> well, he tried to attack my brother too. Anybody he would try to attack. <clears throat> my brother got you know, upset with him one day and just, you know, reared back with his hand and slapped the gobbler right in the face. <laughs> That was enough for him. That gobbler was afraid of him from that day on, but he wasn't afraid of me. So we'd go out in the yard and my brother stopped by to visit and he'd run for my brother, but I'd go there to try to get food out of the barrel. And, and he would just constantly trying to flog me. I said, Hey, come on in the house. Let's swap clothes. So we changed hats, changed shirts and, and pants and shoes and walked back out there. Now we're identical twins. So most people can't tell us apart unless they get to know us. And that gobbler still attacked me and still ran from him. He really? recognized, even though we were identical. He, so that's long story short. Gob, uh, turkeys can recognize each other, and they can recognize us if they given enough time. I bet, but they can recognize voices. So, not only are you out there, you sounding maybe like Jake, but you're a new turkey, and sometimes that's enough to entice a turkey to come in just because there's a new turkey in the area. Hmm. And sometimes that's a reason why a gobbler may hang up. He hears an unfamiliar voice out there, and maybe he's not so sure he wants to go check it out. Maybe it's interesting. A, you know, he in with the gobbler. So uh, people get, I think, get, I'm making turkey sounds. I sound less like the other turkeys. We're all turkeys. You know, they don't know the difference between one another. You know, if you got a hen over here yelping and you're yelping, why does he go to that hen and not you? He knows that hen's voice. Same way in the fall when the mama hen, when you, if you ever do a fall scatter, or you've heard of that fall tactic where you scatter mm-hmm. the flock and you start trying to call them back in as soon as you hear that uh, adult hen start yelping it's over with they're all going to her they know her voice and wow. so it, it all plays out spring and fall they they recognize each other so just keep that in mind yeah wow well uh so we've got we've got this uh we've got this new guy let's say he's he's got just the essential gear he's kind of trying to keep it minimal he's gotten pretty good on his calls now, I want to talk just a little bit about how to find turkeys. So, uh, like I said, I grew up in the South. Uh, it was very, very difficult. I found anytime I tried to turkey hunt as a kid, I never really could find one. I just could not locate a bird. Come up here to farm country. They're a little bit more visible. Yeah. Uh, maybe a lot more visible here. 
But for, for folks who are listening and saying, okay, this is great. I want to get out there and find some turkeys. What am I looking for? Either uh, cyber scouting on a map or with a, with a property and looking at how a property lays out. What am I looking for specifically to find uh, where some turkeys are going to hang, hang out? Where do I want to start my boots on the ground scouting? You know, that's a, that's an interesting point you brought up about down South and up here. It, you know, if I was still living down South and I was going to hunt a new place, I would, I would definitely put boots on the ground up here. It just seems like as long as there's, um, some, uh, mature forest and maybe there's some ag around or whatever, it, as long as it's not a marsh, a cattail marsh and it's public land, you know, it's not full of water. There's good odds. There's going to be turkeys on it. Mm-hmm. A lot of my cyber scout, I don't even put boots on the ground anymore these days. And it's not because I don't want to, it's just because I don't have time to, I'm mm. usually showing up at a state in the middle of the night and going to hunt it the next morning. Yep. I, I usually scout as I'm hunting, but, um, but I just mentioned, basically, if you're, lo- if you're looking online at a piece of public, um, if there's a lot of mature timber on it, uh, maybe broken up some clearings and, and openings, those are good, most likely going to have turkeys. Okay. Um, it's uh, up here. The turkeys are just more plentiful. It seems like, and, uh, any, they need roosting trees. That's the biggest reason. I mean, the biggest thing you're looking for, oh, uh, food is easier to find you know, than, than roosting trees. And, uh, they're, they're going to need some water too. And you don't necessarily need to worry too much about water. Um, if there's water on the neighboring property, that's good enough. The turkeys are, can get moisture out of the bugs and stuff they eat as well. Hmm. So, um, yeah, when I'm cyber scouting, I'm looking for, you know, I'm, I'm mainly concerned about not necessarily whether there's turkeys there, but I'm, I'm more concerned about my access point to get in there and, and how to approach it and, um, maybe what's neighboring, uh, you know, button up to that property and, and where I, where am I going to start my hunt, you know, depending on the topography of the property as well. Um, but like I said, basically up here in the Midwest, if there's not standing water, then there's likely going to be turkeys there as long as it has mature woods. Okay. So mature woods, some openings, maybe a little bit of water, that sort of thing. Yeah. Some ag uh, around is always beneficial, uh, beneficial. Yep. Yep. So, uh, so let, yeah, let's say we're getting out, uh, we found, maybe even found some turkeys. Now I want to talk a little bit about, uh, what separates a successful turkey hunter from somebody who is going to struggle. I have a feeling as you uh, watch people on YouTube or you hunt with other folks or you see people all around, all around the country hunting, you see people making a lot of mistakes. So what are those things that you think separates those uh, who go out and kill turkeys from those who go around and hunt for turkeys? I think, well, that's, there's could be multiple reasons. Uh, sometimes I hear uh, the calling and I'm like, if they were, if they would do this call and, and instead of this one, or they were capable um, but calling's not always, you know, uh, you know, cut and dry. That's going to make it success or not. Hmm. I think what a lot of people fail to do is be aggressive enough. They, they sit in one spot. I watched a video recently they, they were sitting there and birds came out. I don't even think they called enough. They, you know, made a few soft calls, but they didn't even get aggressive in their calling. You don't just have hmm. to be aggressive in your, uh, in your hunting, but aggressive in your calling sometimes help, uh, works. But they're not aggressive in their, you know, hunting as well as far as making moves on birds. You know, after the birds wandered across the field, you know, okay, and they left and went to, you know, they're not interested. Where I would have been probably backing into the woods and circling around and 
setting up in a different location and calling to them from a different point. I think a lot of people just lack, um, lack the desire or lack the knowledge that, Hey, if you can get a little more aggressive and, 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 you know, change up your strategy, a lot of times that can be uh, help your success. I mean, I've been on birds before where I spent hours on one side of them moving around calling and I just couldn't get them to break, but, um, I moved around to the opposite side and it took me a while to get there. Maybe it was the, the fact that I quit calling during that half hour, 45 minute period, trying to get around them that was made the difference. But usually it's the getting on another side of them and, and getting on the side, maybe they wanted to go to that'll help. And just that little simple tactic, you know, I'm able to kill birds fit within 15 minutes of setting up at the new spot where I was spent two or three hours at the other spot, you know, no, the distance between the two spots and the turkeys was the same, you know, hundred yards, 150 yards, but being on the other side, uh, they come right in. So, um, uh, I guess, uh, basically just don't be afraid to be, uh, don't just sit in one spot all day. <laughs> yeah. Don't yeah. be, con- uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that links back to something you were saying earlier, talking about blinds. You know, I think, I think a lot of guys that go set up a blind and, man, they hear turkeys, they see turkeys 300 yards off and they, they don't, they don't go after them. Why yeah, not? I think, well, you got a 50 pound blind you're lugging around. And I think, yeah, I think it's a, one of the deterrents uh, hunting in a blind is they don't want to take the effort to break it down and move it and set it up. And, and, and that also one of the things I guess I'll touch on is what people always tell you to wear black when you hunt them out of a blind and because it'll make you darker. Well, the turkey can't see, but what, what the you know from your neck up through the window the rest of us blocked by the blind i always tell people to wear cam- full camo when they're hunting out of a blind mm-hmm. if you decide to hunt out of blind and that way if you need to make a move you can just unzip the door and slip out the back and now you're in full camo and you can move through the woods if you're in solid black now you're a big black object a black bear moving through the woods <laughs> so um yeah yeah, so not being mobile enough is uh is a pretty it big hurts for you, a lot yeah. of guys. Yeah. yeah. And 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 one of the strategies a lot of people say is if you're just patient and 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 yeah, you can have success, some success like that, but um to me deer deer hunting is not deer hunting and sitting in one location all day is deer hunting and I don't want to do that with turkeys. I have sat in one location for a long period of time because I knew it eventually paid off, but I can tell you it wasn't nearly as fun as running and gunning. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think too, uh, another thing that, that I battled with that I didn't anticipate, you know, I'm watching you and I'm watching THP and I'm watching all these other guys on YouTube. Uh, and then I get out there in the woods and I realize I don't, I'm, I'm lacking a lot of that confidence that says you can go get that bird. Mm-hmm. Like I hear it and I think, oh, if I move, I'm going to mess it up. Or if I, if I, if I try to circle around, what if I, what if I get too close or uh, whatever the case may be. And I think that that's another one, just, uh, you know, like you said, being aggressive, but then just being confident that, that you, that you can do it. I mean, yeah, and aggressive, being aggressive is going to cost you birds also. So just sure. be aware of that. I mean, uh, sure. um, sometimes I overthink situations and because I'm weighing the factors, if I get aggressive here, am I going to ruin the hunt? I could just sit back and, and wait more, a little longer. And that's cost me hunts uh also because i've sat there and contemplated too long and i was too conservative if i got on the move sooner i would have been in position you know to make something happen so i mean there's always pros and cons to it but i think overall if you if you hunted 10 years being aggressive and 10 years of being conservative uh the 10 years of aggressive strategies is gonna 
you're going to be successful more often. Yeah. So you mentioned just a second ago, you know, you, you be aggressive, you get around the bird and you may be the same distance away and, and yet they break that time. Yeah. Uh, what, what's, uh, what's maybe the bubble that you're shooting for? Like how close is close enough? And, and what are some of the factors? I, I know that's going to be a bit situational, but what are some of the factors that play into how close you want to get to a bird? The, the bubble, if I had to pick a range is, is within a hundred yards and I, okay. there's no, really no set distance. I mean, I could be 150 yards from a Turkey. And if I can get just 50 more yards closer, depending on the cover or whatever, it seems like if you get close enough and this has happened plenty of times for me and then make a call, the birds break and come right in. You're, you're within that bubble. You're close enough. They're willing to come over and meet you halfway to check you out. And by then you're in gun range, they're in mm -hmm. gun range. Other times I've seen it, you know, no be 30 yards. And uh, I killed, um, a really nice gobbler in Wisconsin one year and, and they, it was two of them and they had hens with them and Jake's it's a mixed flock. Even though this was in late May, it was still a mixed flock. Mm. And, um, I, I just couldn't get them to break and come my way. And I, I crawled through the woods. There was enough uh, cover down low that I kept crawling and crawling. And I didn't know how close I was. I just knew I was getting close. And then I started hearing the drumming of the gobblers. And, um, and I just made a few soft yelps and, and, and basically was making noise in the leaves. As I was crawling, I was scratching. And I think being that close was finally what got it. And it wasn't the gobblers. It was the hens. The hens finally came over to check me out. Mm. And they walked by at like 20 yards, 15 or 20 yards. And then this is how thick it was in there. And the gobblers walked right behind them strutting. And, and I was able to, uh, to make it happen. But, um, I mean, sometimes it, it's very difficult to get that close to a turkey, though. I oh, mean, yeah. uh, the, oh, this yeah. situation, it was just worked out perfectly for me. But the bubble, if I had to give a, a, a number, like I said earlier, it's probably uh, 100 yards, 90 yards, something like that. seems like things start to go better for you if you can get sure. in that bubble sure so let, let's talk then just a second about i've, I've got to mention a, a video of yours i watched recently where you guys are chasing a, a, a field bird mm. <laughs> and uh <laughs> I, I don't i don't know what you guys could have done differently i know i went after one uh last year and got it handed to me and i would i would work around to this bird and get close the distance and I, i'm in the woods i'm totally concealed and uh, there's a ridge. I could drop back off the ridge, work all the way down, come up, call, and that thing would move another hundred yards yeah. away from me. But it's like he, he could read your mind. Yeah, and actually, and what... actually, there were two. There were it was it was like it, there were two gobblers. I'm guessing they were young. There was one hen with them, mm -hmm. and I could not get them to do anything. And finally, I ended up spooking them because I was like, I'm either gonna I'm either gonna kill them or scare them. Uh, one of these two, one of the two things is happening. What what is going on in that kind of a situation, or what can you do different, or uh, maybe even when do you decide? Okay, I'll save this bird for tomorrow. Well, I was mentioning earlier about being conservative too long. I was actually thinking of that hunt, the one I just posted recently. Okay, with me and Catman. Yep, Catman. The gobbler was there was a, a grass strip in the middle of the field, and I guess to prevent erosion or whatever because it was on the hillside there. The farmer had left and the grass was tall enough to block us and to block the gobbler from seeing us and the gobbler was off to the right and Catman kept talking about crawling up to that strip and and 
figuring the gobbler would walk and pass by us, you know, if we got up there. And I kept talking him out of us, like, nah, I think he sounded like he was a little closer. And we had a hen down in the woods we had heard yelping earlier. And we figured he may come down and check her out. Plus, we had yelped some. And I was like, maybe we, maybe we just need to stay here a little bit longer. And finally, I was like, yeah, we probably need to make a move. And we made a move and crawled up to that strip. And by the time we got eyes on him, he had already passed by. And he was off to the left 80 yards and, and, going, and kept going. And you'll hear me in the video saying, yeah, maybe we should have moved sooner when you, when you wanted to. And, and it was my fault trying to be too conservative. I think, you know, had we moved sooner. That, that was just, you know, the way the, the cookie crumbled, I guess, or the luck of the draw. In a, a field bird, I mean, I hate to say this, you could use a fan on them. I don't I've, – I've used a fan in South Dakota before. It's just not my favorite way to hunt them, and, and I probably won't ever do it again. It's just um, – I, I don't know. I just like to give them the fair chance you know, to come to calling or use my strategy. I don't like a, to put a big fan up there. Um, I don't have anything against anybody doing it. It's just not for me, I guess, um, even though I've tried it before. It's just something that I feel like um, – I'm, I'm losing, I'm kind of cheating myself the experience. Mm, um, yeah. The field birds are just are funky birds. I mean, it was like this one here could read our mind. Like I said earlier about yours. Um, we would make a move on the turkey and then he'd go this way. You know, we'd, we'd circle around this way. And before we get there, he'd already went over here. You know, it just, it's like he knew he was one step ahead of us the entire time. Mm. I just hate field birds. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know a real good answer. <laughs> Except for maybe if you got time to watch the field and see he has coming and goings, um, set up where he likes to come and go and don't make a sound, just wait for him to walk by. You know? Yeah. So maybe in that instance, treating it a little more, a little bit more like deer hunting. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to use a decoy in the field, uh, I mean, I guess that'll work. Um, it's just sometimes these field birds that uh, they won't even react to a decoy. They just st stand the ground. They insist you come to him. It seemed like this guy when we were hunting, that was his whole, uh, uh persona there i mean he he would sit there and strut and gobble and then a hen would come up to the field and he would breed it and then she would leave and he'd just walk the top he would stay on the high ground of that field because that field rolled over and he'd walk one end to the other and just the hens would come out of the wood and breed and he or or hang out for a little bit not necessarily breed and then and then go on their own uh, out on their own it was like he was that was his strut zone i guess you could call it his strutting area he was highly visible there and he had he had the the advantage of being able to see any danger approach. Yeah. So I don't Safety know. I'm not, no I'm reason just, I'm basically, I'm just no help for you on field birds. I'm, <laughs> I don't like them. I'm a timber hunter. I prefer the hunting, the timber. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh there's a lot of fields up here and I'm, I'm yeah. driving around watching them in the fields and I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to figure out something, but it makes me feel a lot better that you don't like them. I feel like I'm no, in I good don't. company. <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd like to kill that one because he was huge, but uh, <laughs> this sure is a challenge to hunt him sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, you <laughs> mentioned a little bit earlier about a mixed flock in May and that being odd. We talk a lot about with deer hunting, you know, you hear about the pre, you know, early season when they're on food and then you got the pre-rut, the rut, the post-rut, and you got late season, they're back to food. And I feel like it, it's it's pretty well um it, it obviously well documented, but, but a lot of people talk about the phases of the whitetail season. I don't, I don't feel as though I hear as much about that when it comes to turkeys and maybe it's just that I'm new to this whole game, but talk to me a little bit about what turkeys are doing uh, throughout the year. So let's use Wisconsin as an example. Our season comes in uh, in April goes through, I think June 1st this year. So what is the, what is the year 
or the season and a turkey's life going to look like and and how might that impact the way that i'm trying to hunt them okay i'll start off in the summer and go from there okay. so in the summer you have you have hens with poults and uh sometimes other hens with poults will meet up and they'll have multiple hens with poults and all their poults you know sometimes there'll be hens that don't have poults that are joined in so you'll have uh basically a, a flock of multiple hens and multiple po uh, poults from multiple families or multiple hens um you also have bachelor groups of males a lot of times the long beards will hang out together and the jakes will hang out in their little groups but you also see some jakes mixing but so you got the males grouping up and you got the hens with poults grouping up and then you'll have hens that don't have poults that'll group together so you may see three or four hens and you always hear this the the negative nancy's out there oh man our hatch must be bad i saw three hens today not not a single one of them had poults you know stuff just happens you know <laughs> um but but if you see hens together no poults that's just hens that either didn't breed at all hmm. and sometimes they're juvenile hens that didn't breed and, and you can identify that the the age i can't I, I don't necessarily go in detail there's a link on my website that shows you how to tell the difference between a mature bird and a juvenile even the hens okay um but anyway sometimes the the hens are together and then the hen so that's your three main groups maybe four if you got jakes together um as it gets into to winter and fall and mainly winter they'll, they'll start kind of intermingling and the groups will get bigger uh the the males the like the toms will still kind of stay on their own for the most part but you'll you may get some other hens coming into those hens with poults as those poults got more mature down south you didn't see this really where did i didn't see it at all but up here in minnesota wisconsin you'll see turkeys i guess yard up like deer mm -hmm. especially if the winter's real bad um if there's a farm with cattle and silage and stuff i've seen you know a flock of 200 300 turkeys wow just wintering basically at that farm and yep. you may not see turkeys anywhere else in the yep. countryside. Um, but then as, as it gets closer to spring, you'll have those, those uh, flocks start breaking up. You know, the jakes are going together. The, the toms will start mixing in with those hens and collecting their harem, I guess. And, and sometimes the jakes will hang out, especially if there's a jake, uh, hen with poults. Her now her poults are, are getting maturity. She's got some jakes in there and she's got some jennies and then the toms are in there to breed. That's why sometimes you'll see some jakes running around with that, that group there. Those jakes are just the, the offspring of the mature hens in that flock. And then you've got jakes off and they're running in their little groups and that, that cause trouble sometimes and run off your tom if you're calling one in. Uh, you may have uh, subordinate toms over here. So now you've got more, you've, you've still got several groups, but they're different dynamics to what's in there and, and going on. But as, as the year progresses or as the season progresses, you get later in the season, typically you'll see one or two mature toms and they have, you know, one or two hens with them. Um, some of them are getting shot. So now you got one time with just a couple hens. Uh, some of the subordinates are going, going more into their summer phase. They're not as interested in breeding, especially late in the summer. You'll see, you may see some, Toms or uh, Jake's that I don't even care to react to a hen talking if you're yelping to them, mm. and then the other ones are fired up and gobbling their heads off. Um, you'll start those. That's the time when you'll kill more of the mature toms. They they're now more susceptible to calling. And that's later in the season. Yeah, where okay. before they could just stand there and gobble, and their hens would come to them. Mm -hmm. 
now later in the season you'll have they're losing their hands and, and i've killed one of my my biggest turkeys up here in minnesota number three bird in the state right now um wow. the last day of the season he was just gobbling his head off he was still a difficult bird i couldn't get him to budge but i was um i was able to to use his enthusiasm his gobbles to move around on him and then then got into some soft stuff and was able to get close enough uh, but anyway um so that's what you'll see in the late season you usually don't see a mixed flock of hens that seemed like an earlier season flock mm-hmm. they're like uh opening day you may see a flock that's still not broke up there's some jakes and jennies and hens and some toms so that's what was odd about that one okay. uh, and then as you get in get closer to summer the males break off into their bachelor groups again they're, they're they've lost interest in the breeding I'm sure if a hen came out and squatted in front of them, they would b- try to breed it. But, uh, and of course, that's what happens during the summer. If a hen lost her nest and she tried to rebreed, she'd go to a gobbler and the gobbler would, you know, they would breed all year if the hen would let them. Really? Okay. But, but then, but in the summer, they start breaking up. You got gobblers off together in their bachelor groups, Jake's together, sometimes a mix of the two. And then now you've got your hens that aren't nesting hanging out. The other hens that are nesting or or setting on their nest and or starting to hatch off poults and they're going to stay by themselves initially and then once their poults get maybe a couple weeks old to start inviting other hens with poults to join them and then the cycle continues hmm. now there are variations to all that i just told you that's just the basic rundown of it sure sure do your tactics change a lot and I, I know you mentioned you know sometimes you can get your your older gobblers later on in the season when they start to lose a lot of their hens do your tactics change quite a bit or are you you kind of sticking with the same formula from the beginning of the season to the end yeah i, I pretty much hunt turkeys the same way from start to finish i know a okay. lot of people try to put that term phase of the season on there for gobblers and the, and a lot of that's just marketing tools you'll hear that from companies trying to sell you something different but call I, for different parts yeah you need to do this and you know I'm, I'm more of aggressive caller and hunter overall again the season i'm gonna cut and yelp to them i might get excited i'm gonna try and call. i'm just gonna judge that gobbler each gobbler i and, uh come across and i'm hunting i'm gonna just kind of take his temperature and see how he's acting to, to determine my strategy but i my if you if i had to narrow it down to one basic strategy aggressive calling and aggressive tactics you know get in there tight for them i one of my favorite tactics is to try and roost a bird and i know that's hard to do in the south and southeast but they just don't want to gobble in the evenings mm-hmm. up here it's, it's much easier they love to gobble in the tree in the evening and uh one of my favorite strategies up here is to hit an owl hooter or, or coyote howl at sunset or just after sunset pinpoint the tree they're in and i don't just like to to say oh i heard one gobble on that ridge and then leave I'll try to get them to gobble again. You know, I'll walk over here 200 yards or whatever and get them to gobble from a different angle. And now I've triangulated and I know almost the exact trees in. And so then I can slip in there real close in the morning. I, I probably have a 75% success rate on roosted gobblers that way. You know, the next morning, they usually, you can get in there tight enough and just a few bubble clucks and soft yelps and they pitch down right to you. Come check you out. Yep. Wow. I, w- I was able to do that last year on, uh, on a bird. And, um, I don't know if this is typical, just talking about locating a bird. So, uh, I was at the farm, uh, that I had permission on and, uh, I was hunting a gobbler and he was going back and forth between two different fields. And I just so happened to be hunting him in the evening on a, on a, on an evening that he wasn't in that mm-hmm. field. But as I got back to the truck, I heard him gobble on the other side. So I'd 
got out, drove around. Good part about uh, here, lots of roads, right, that I can uh, kind of try to triangulate the bird, kind of like you're yep. saying. And I got to the other side, and I got him to gobble one time, but then he wouldn't He wouldn't gobble again at owl hoots, coyote calls, anything. He would not gobble again. So I, I came home, and I thought about it, and I reasoned from that that he could probably see me from where I was parked yeah. at on the road. Is that something that's typical? Uh, because I, I got in there the next morning and I, and I killed him five minutes after shooting light opened up uh, and he was right where he could see my car yeah. uh, from the road. Is that pretty typical? Maybe you get one gobble out of them, but if you don't get another, like they might be able to see where you're at. I've had a couple of instances. Uh, one was last year in South Dakota where we got him to gobble and we were up on a hillside. It was open prairie and it was a creek bottom. And I was afraid they might see us go across, you know, because uh, the, the sun had set in our face, basically. So even though the sun was down and it was pretty dark out there, we were illuminated by the, the, mm-hmm. the, the sky, you know, brighter it is towards the sun in that direction of the sky. And I was trying to triangulate these birds and I moved off, you know, a few hundred yards across the hill and I couldn't get them to gobble again. And I, you can hear me in the video say they're sitting there looking at us right now. That's why we uh, can't get them to gobble again. Okay. Uh, the other instance, and I'm sure this happened more than uh, once, was in Wisconsin. Um, I had drove down this dirt road, and there was a huge bluff that went up. And I mean, it looked like it was a half mile up in the air above Jeez. us. And I got one to gobble up there. And I'm sitting there and trying to get him to gobble again, and he would not gobble. And I happened to look, I noticed something up in the tree up there. And I got zoomed in my camcorder and, and I, th- I got my binoculars out too. And there he was sitting on the limb looking right down, you know, down there at the gravel, <laughs> gravel road, me looking up at him and he wouldn't gobble again. And uh, so I know in that instance too, he, he could see us. So they could probably see a lot more than we, they probably spot us a lot more. But most of the times when I get one to gobble, I'm locating. Uh, if you go back and look at some of my Minnesota hunts from this uh, season, I just recently posted. I'm so I'm so far away from them. They they're lucky if they even see us. And if they did, we're so far away. I mean, you're talking about I'm coyote howling or owl hooting, and it takes several, you know, a second or two for it to get over there, and then another second or two for the gobble to get back. So wow, it's a it's a delay. Um, so they but yeah, they they see us sometimes, and that that sometimes that's why they won't give you but one gobble, and then they're like, yeah, I'm not gobbling anymore. Yeah, <laughs> they're sitting there looking at you with their big old eyeball. <laughs> so let let's talk just a little bit about locator calls. Um, you know, I've had a lot of guys uh, that I've talked to that I said, hey, I'm going to be talking with Shane. They said, ask him what locator calls he uses. What does he recommend? What should we be using? So specifically thinking about Wisconsin, I don't know if it if it differs maybe throughout the country as what what tactics you try. But if guys are just getting a, are having a really hard time locating birds or having a, a really hard time. Uh, maybe they get one gobble out of them and they just can't get any more. Uh, what would you say to them? Oh, I think uh, I've had this, the most success is with the higher pitch or louder sounds like the I do owl hoots. And if they're really if they're really, you know, pent up with a lot of testosterone or whatever the uh, hormones are, you know, up on the tree limb and any little sound to get them to gobble, just that first little whoo, gets them to gobble. But a lot of times it takes to get to that cattle waller and or that laughing of a barred owl that I do mm-hmm. to get that to to pull that gobble out of them. And then and even in some other cases, I had to get the coyote howl out and that loud scream. It is so loud and carries so far. And that sometimes work 
Um, I know a lot of guys that they use crow calls and pileated woodpeckers, peacock calls, um, you know, some type of whistle or train, you know, little air horns. <laughs> it seems like the most most effective call for roost, get them to gobble on the roost, is a louder pitch call. On those days that are tough to pull out a gobble, those can pull one out of them. Um, once once daytime rolls around, your um, your hunting. I normally just use an owl hoot during the day. Mm. Um, it's sometimes I use a coyote howl. I used to carry a crow call with me. I just because I got so much camera gear, I, I I'd rather carry a battery than a crow call, an extra battery. Um, I I can do a fairly decent natural voice crow call. Um, I guess it's just up to you. I I just seem to have a lot of success with my owl hooting and my coyote howling, and I rely on those maybe too much, but um, it is what it is. Yeah, there's kind, definitely. Go ahead. What what kind of owl? Uh, it's or whatever um, is it that you that you use? This is called the the Hooks Harrison Signature Hoot and Stick. Okay. <laughs> That's a long name. Long name. Yeah. So Hooks Custom. Yeah, Hooks Custom Calls uh, sells this call. Uh, it was originally designed by James Harrison. He's a multi Grand National Owl Hooting Champion. He's with Hook. He pro staffs for Hooks also. Um, the signature ones, uh, James actually hand turns and does all this stuff and they, and they're more expensive and they sound the best. I actually used one in competition and, and tied for first place at grand nationals with it. Oh, wow. Uh, it sounds so good and, and really I'm a stickler for realism. So I, I want to sound like an owl out there. I know a lot of people buy an owl hooter. They just want some volume. They're not concerned so much about realism. Um, I'm, I'm more concerned about sounding realistic. I want to fool the owls. I want to. Not only I want to fool the owls and fool the other hunters and not give away my maybe my location, but my 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 thinking is, and I've had this work, is if I can sound like a real owl, I may not get a bird to gobble that's 400 yards away, but I may get that an owl to respond to me that's 400 yards away, and he's maybe 50 yards or 100 yards from that gobbler, and now that owl that hooted close to that gobbler, it was loud enough and it got him to gobble and i had that happen in south carolina i was mm. hooting and carrying on i couldn't get one to gobble and finally a real owl another owl uh or yeah a real owl responded to me and this is like nine or ten o'clock in the morning sun's up high in the sky he woo, 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 you know and then I, right beside him a turkey gobble wow my my calling wasn't loud enough because i was so far away from him so he's just hearing a faint out but that so that's kind of why I'm, I got off on tangent there again, but that's why I'm a stickler for realism. Uh, but because it sounds so realistic, I use it for competition. I also take it to the woods. Um, and then the other thing is my coyote howler, and that's just my turkey call. I'm just using I'm just using it because once we talked about earlier, learning your airflow. Yep. I'm using the rasp of a Yelp to bark with. Okay. And I'm using that key key, the clear front note to create the howl. Okay. So. I'm still working on my Yelp. So it's probably going to be a while before I break out a coyote on a, mm. on a Turkey call. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's helpful with the, with the, with the owl hooting. Um, so we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, roosted birds, right? Trying to roost a bird. You said you have really high success rate when it comes to birds uh, that are roosted and something you mentioned earlier, when you're looking at a piece of property, they got to have roost trees. And I'd never really thought about that much until last year, you know, there are some trees turkeys really can't roost in very well. So what, what are you looking for when you say, I, I want to find some spots that may be 
nice roost trees or whatever. Uh, what am I looking for? Because here in Wisconsin, there is quite a bit of different timber. You know, I'm, I'm from Alabama. And so it's, you know, 3,000 acres pines, of pine trees. Yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, you know, they, I, they do have a diversity of types, tree types. Um, I typically look for more mature trees, although I have seen turkeys roost in little scrub trees. And that was basically, okay. that was all that was available in the area. Gotcha. Um, and maybe they did a timber cutting or something. Now the turkeys that are left, you know, they're just roosting whatever's there. They're probably going to disappear, but um, <laughs> they basically need, I don't know. Uh, they don't have to have a limb the size of a broom handle. Um, a little bit bigger than that's probably ideal. I've seen them roost on limbs that are much bigger than that. Um, but basically, so I'm going I'm to go on a little side story here. Sure. A, a turkey can't close its toes. They don't have muscles in their toes to close it. It's mm -hmm. a tendon that runs up the leg. And when they bend their leg, it causes, it pulls it tight and pulls their toes closed. So if you watch a turkey that's running as it, as it bends its leg, the toes close up. Interesting. Okay. So when a turkey goes to sleep on the roost, it squats down and that squatting to bend the leg locks those toes around that limb so they can sleep and they don't, they're not physically holding their toes closed. Wow. It's, okay. It's not just turkeys. It's other birds, you know, songbirds, robins, you know, you name it They're They don't operate their toes with muscles or it's just a tendon. Anyway. So basically you need trees that have somewhat horizontal growing limbs and bigger trees with those types of limbs limbs so when you see some of these uh these scrub trees out there that the, uh, the limbs are all grown at like 45 degree angles and they don't have a you know a nice substantial limb coming off it at a more of a horizontal angle um those are not ideal pine trees are a perfect example of good roosting trees you see most of the limbs come off at nearly a horizontal angle oak trees have enough diversity in the the limbs and stuff coming out in sizes that there's usually some good roost limbs in it and they'll they'll land on a roost on a bigger limb you know that's um six inches in diameter stuff but it seems like they they typically look for that ideal i guess the thickness of our arm type of limb or maybe just a hair smaller um yeah so if you had to look for a general species of pines or oaks would be your, your top two um Douglas firs and stuff like that. It just seems, seems too thick, you know, around it from to get in there to the limbs. Yep, it needs yep. to be openings from the land up on the limbs. I'm trying to think what all trees are up here. Your aspens and birch are just horrible for roosting trees. Uh, although I'm sure occasionally they use them. But basically when I, when I say mature uh, timber on a property I'm looking for, I'm looking for like hard, like oaks okay. uh, for the most part. Uh, there's not a whole lot of pines up here. There are a few here and there, not like they are down south. Yeah. Yeah. So you've, uh, you've talked a little bit about some things that have, that have really contributed to your success. sounds like one of them is being able to roost a bird, right? Like that's a big deal. The second is some aggressive calling and, and you being aggressive on the ground, not being afraid to make a move on yeah. a bird. Uh, is there any, uh, are there any other things that you say, man, when I started doing this, I took my success uh, to the next level, you know, it, it something that helped you up your game. I think the biggest, uh, improvement I saw overall was, um, when I started competition calling and my mm. calling improved and not just the sound that I was making, but how I presented it to the turkeys. I was communicating with them rather than just making turkey sounds. 
Wow. When I was younger, I would yep, 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 yep. And that was kind of the every time I was ready to call, I did the same thing. Yep, yep. I wasn't really telling a story or communicating with those turkeys. Hmm. Now, and and it's still a big guess a lot of times, to be honest. I mean, as long as I've been doing this, when I'm talking to a turkey, you know, I'm I'm I picture in my mind what I want to sound like over here or what I want to convey to the turkey. I may not be trying to tell them to come over here but I may be trying to convince him that there's a hen here and then there's a Jake here, you know, there may be a Tom walking around and, you know, I'm just trying to paint a picture of something going on over here. Yeah. Sometimes I'm just pretending I'm a, a lone hen and I was like, and I'm insisting he come over here. You know, I'm, uh, I'm cutting. I may go into a, a two minute sequence of just just cutting nonstop of an agitated head. And uh, I've heard it enough and it's helped me enough that it, that I use it. And it's, uh, it continues to be, help me be successful. Uh, I'll give a quick story. Um, I was set up on this field edge one time and basically didn't have anywhere else to hunt. And, and it was just this field that was surrounded by timber of the neighbor's property. And just so happened, one of their trees had fallen down, I guess, and landed in the field there and grass had grown up around it. That was the only thing I could hide myself with was to mm. set up around that tree. And a hen comes in. I heard some birds gobbling off behind me on the neighbor's property off in the distance. They would gobble to my calls, but they didn't budge. And she came in and she saw me sitting there against that tree. And I don't know if she had a nest there or just didn't know what I was. But I was like, if she tries to go past me to the left, I'm going to scare her off because I didn't want to go into those gobblers. And she come in she's like, Fuck. And she got to about six feet from my foot and I lunged at her and it scared the, <laughs> the, the piss out of her. And she went straight up in the air and then landed like 30 yards out in front of me or off to my right a little bit. And she starts cutting and she starts walking towards me. And I'm like, are you crazy? kidding me? She comes right back to me to figure out what I was. All I did was lunge and then I got still again. And maybe she had a nest there. I don't know. Maybe that's why she was uh, insisting on coming back. But as she started cutting, I could hear the, the intensity of these gobbles behind me. They picked up. So I started cutting back with her. She was back, back. And I was back, 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 back and forth. Back, 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 back. It was just a, two hands there cutting back and forth. And those birds were going crazy behind me. Finally, they shut up. And she, she cut some more. And, and, and then she slipped in the woods behind me. And it wasn't five minutes later, probably less than that. It just seemed a little bit longer, but I hear, you know, the drumming, spitting drum of a gobbler yeah. and, and off to my left, here they come. They had all that cutting. They broke them, uh, broke them gobblers and they come right in. And I've done that uh, on a few hunts. I've got another one on video that a uh, youth hunt, I did the same tactic. And so how did I get to this point? <laughs> yeah. We were talking about just other things that have taken yeah. your success, maybe to the next level. Yeah. And you you just, start talking about your calling. Yeah. Just not, not just making turkey sounds, but communicating. And and that was, you know, Jake helps is communicating. You're trying to convey that there's some Jake's over here. Um, I guess if you don't know how to communicate with them per se, just imagine a scenario you want to create and just start yelping and, and Jake yelping or do whatever to create maybe a flock, a mixed flock. And don't worry about him over there gobbling because his gobble shouldn't dictate what's happening over here. You should just do your thing and make him 
finally decided to come look but uh yeah cutting that that instance there we were we were painting a picture we were communicating with each other me and the hen and not them so uh just being realistic i guess all uh, it's just turkeys talking out there in the wild to each yeah other. i like the way you say that paint painting a picture or telling a story uh and and even like you said just a second ago uh this is going on irregardless of what he's doing yeah. No, you're not even worried about him. Yeah, you're this not is... part of the picture. If you want to be, just come on over here. <laughs> <laughs> come on over. Shane will make you a part of the yeah. part of the picture real quick. Yeah, right? We'll put you on video. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, one of the things that that I hear a lot about. Now, last year, um, I set up on a couple of birds. I I really didn't even get to hunt that many times. I, I had two hunts that were just five minutes off the roost hunts done. I'm going home. Uh, and a couple of setups in between, but, uh, I, I had a very short Turkey season last year. It's not how I thought it was going to go. Uh, what do I do though? Let's say this coming year, you know, I'm thinking I can't be that lucky all the time, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not just going to get them right off the roost. What I do on those mornings where I get out there and I don't hear a thing. Like maybe I know they're roosting over here, but they're just not gobbling. Uh, or maybe I hear them fly down. And they, they don't make a peep. They just, they head off in the other direction. So actually I had that happen to me once last year, I set up on some roosted birds and uh, I was hunting behind a farm and another hunter who had permission there had come in and uh, walked around, stood behind the building. Finally, he saw me and he, he turned around and left. I had slipped in there in the pitch black dark at like three in the morning. I mean, I'd been there for a long time and he comes in right, right before fly down. I hear the birds fly down. They go the other direction, never gobbled or anything. So what do I do on those mornings when I've got, you know, when I, when I hear nothing. But you know, there's turkeys around. But I know there's turkeys nearby. They're just not responding. They're not talking to me. But uh, I guess there's two main tactics I use in like some of these areas. I, I run and gun at it and I'll go to a spot. If I don't hear anything there, I may move off to another one and go you know, just venture not very deep in the woods to make some calls. In other cases where I know there should be turkeys there. And maybe they're just not talking. I basically turn the dial back to uh, I'm in no hurry mode. Hmm. Um, okay. I may just sit there on a rock outcropping or or on the edge of the edge of the field and just let the the morning do what it's doing. I may even throw a few calls out there or walk through the woods slowly. I I, I one of my favorite approaches on those days too is is just to take it nice and slow through the woods. Take it slow and easy. You know, slowly walk and listen. Every once in a while, I'll make a call, sit down, maybe just sit one spot 15 minutes and wait. A lot of times, those birds that were quiet at daybreak at nine o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden, just their switch goes off and they change moods and they start gobbling. Hmm. Or it's like something triggered in the barometer or something and multiple birds start gobbling. And then other days, you never hear anything. You just spend three or four or five hours out there slowly walking around and not hearing anything. But, um, I guess it's not a bad idea just to don't be in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Don't, uh, you know, not all hunts happen in the first 30 minutes of daybreak. Yep. Uh, just take it easy. I mean, unless you have somewhere to go, don't be in a hurry. Just, just enjoy the the day and, and, and hopefully it'll turn around. And I've had a lot of success that way. Just taking it nice and slow and easy. And like I said, a bird all of a sudden just fires off or you get, you get with him within his bubble, you know, he was 300 yards away when he heard you call and he just didn't gobble. Now you're 150 yards away and you make out some, uh, you know, let out a few yelps or a cut and he hammers back. Okay. Now he's like, up. Oh, 
time to time for business. Yeah, now we're in the game. So one uh one more situational, I guess, hunting related scenario. So let's say I'm I'm out there in the woods and I've got I've got one coming in. Um, you know, I've gotten in inside of that bubble and I and I think he's coming and I want to make a setup. What are some of the things that I'm looking for? Um, I think the temptation, I, I saw you mention the other day on a, on a, on a video, actually on, um, on YouTube, you had commented that something about like, that's a classic case of, of being in too thick a cover, basically yeah. you're, you're just in it too thick. And, uh, but I, I got to realizing like, you know, there's a lot that plays into what's the ideal scenario. If I'm in big timber, you know, and there's a little rise out in front of me, like, what am well, I, that was, what am that I was trying the, uh... to do? That was the hunting public's video I'd watched. Yeah. And they were they were struggling to get a shot at this bird. Now, obviously, like I mentioned before, um, I wasn't there. And so a camera only gives you a narrow perspective. And also the fact that they're trying to get coordinated, the gun and the camera. And I'm sure yep. Ted had opportunities to shoot, but the camera wasn't on. Sure. But I, I think that setup there, they had brush it in, the, in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, um, some hunters will make that mistake of trying to get too concealed and now they're causing problems for shot opportunities when there's a bird in front of them. And, and I get it. Some people are just so paranoid about being busted. I've, I've watched videos on YouTube of a guy hunting out of a blind and he had a little peephole to look through and there was a gobbler <laughs> out in front of him and his breathing was so heavy and he was trying to slide the barrel of the gun through that little hole. And I'm like, dude, relax. He can't, he doesn't even know you're in there. You're in a, you got a little peephole to look out of, you know? <laughs> so I get that there's different degrees of people's anxiety over, or, or paranoia about being busted. And so some like to get a little too much cover. Um, then there's other guys I see that maybe hunt a field edge and they just plop down right next to a tree right on the edge of the field. And I'm like, man, as soon as they, a turkey comes out, he's going to see you immediately. You're mm. just too exposed. So there's a, there's a, a balance you got to have. I like to have a little bit of shadows. I like to have a little bit of back cover, maybe a twig or two in front of me with some leaves at maybe, um, breast height, I guess, you know, okay. or, or just below the, my gun, if it was resting on my knee, um, just to give me a little, break it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think what saved me on my Michigan hunt that you're going to see soon and may be out by the time this podcast goes live that the shadows and the cover where I was at saved the day. And I won't go into detail. You'll see the video. It actually saved my butt on me between me getting this bird and not getting it. Um, I had the, a right, a, a nice mix of shadows and leaf cover, but not too much where it impeded me being able to shoot. And plus I have a, I have a camera on, on a tripod with a burlap around it. So that adds another tree trunk right next to me sure. to give me some concealment, but yeah, just um, I think get as cut. Co- I guess the easy way to put it would be get as concealed as you can without impeding your ability to to move your gun left and right and shoot. Okay, that's would be the easiest way to say it. Yeah, and you you mentioned those shadows being being a help to you. I imagine that goes into your you said your slow walks right as you're working your way through the woods. Maybe you're throwing out some calls here and there. Are you paying attention? as you move, like, okay, I'm looking over here, looking over there, like I'm near a spot that would be decent to set up. Or are you thinking about that as you're going, or are you just, let's wait to hear a bird and then I'm going to start kicking it. Yeah. I, I usually, I, I'm, I'm more, I'm better about when I make my call about the area I want to kill one. Like if I get to an area, I'm like, Oh, this would be a good spot to call one up to. What I'm bad about is 
picking out the spot I'm gonna sit down in that area before I make a call. Yeah, I, I usually try to say, oh, this is a good area to call one up to, and there's a good tree to sit down next to. I usually jump the gun a lot of times, like, oh, this is a good area to kill one, and I let out some calls, and then one gobbles. Now I'm going, oh crap, where am I gonna sit? <laughs> um, but uh, for the most part, I, I, I I'm not too horrible at it. I'll I'll get I'll walk through the woods if I've walked a hundred yards. Maybe I haven't seen the perfect area to kill one. I'll I'll look for it. You know, say okay, this will do. Uh, if I sit over there, this will do. Let's make a call here. Or if I'm coming up on a rise or something, maybe it's just I don't want to crest this little hill before I make a call in case there's something on top or just on the other side. Uh, then I'll make a call. But uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to be part of the woods when I move through there, like a deer just grazing slowly through the woods. If I see something that looks like, yeah, there could be a turkey nearby. And a lot of that just comes with experience. You know, um, I can go through the woods, for instance. I've deer hunted so long, especially down in the southeast. I've, a lot of times I didn't even have to see a deer trail, deer tracks. I'm like, oh, this would be a good spot to kill a deer. And it would hang a stand and deer would come through there the first afternoon without not even seeing a trail or anything. It just looked, you, after years of experience, you just get that mindset. You can just instantly see something say, yep, got to be, got to be a killing spot here. Yep. Um, but so it's hard to convey all that in a podcast, but, um, just, just think about, I guess, constantly be thinking as you're walking through the woods and then, and just take it slow, whatever. Sure. Sure. And I I think something you just tapped into, uh, it takes a lot of experience. And I think a lot of guys, especially these days in the days of podcasting and the days of YouTube, we can cut that learning curve a bit but there's no replacement no. for that experience. There, the, those moments you step into an area and you're like, there's a buck in here. Yeah. Okay, you could, there's going to be turkeys in here. You could listen to every podcast and watch every YouTube video from the hunting public or Dave Owens or whoever, from the time you're uh, three years old until now. And if you never stepped foot in the woods, you're going to be just like a person who's never seen any of those videos and never hunted before. I mean, it it takes uh I mean you're gonna have a slight advantage, I guess. <laughs> sure, but, sure. But boots on the ground, like you said, and just getting out there encountering animals, knowing learning from your mistakes. Mistakes make you a better hunter. Um, yep. um and failures and unfilled tags definitely make you a better hunter. <laughs> a little motivation goes yeah. a long way. <laughs> yeah. You learn from all those reasons you didn't fill a tag. That's right. That's right. Well, the last, I guess, hunting specific related thing I want to ask you, um, when you, you've got a bird, you've been working him two, three hours and it's just not happening. What informs your decision when you say, you know what, not today on this one, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave him and I'm going to go either look for another one or what, what informs that, uh, especially in a, in a dense Turkey populated area, like southern wisconsin where where i'm at there's turkeys all over the place if i don't go after this one i can probably go find another one yeah that's what are what are the things that are going to cue me in and that it's time to move on that's a much easier decision up here (laughs) if i was in mississippi and there's one goblin i'm gonna stay with him you know because it may be the only one you get on or or around i say mississippi i'm thinking about it because i just uh they had the draw results out today so that's Uh fresh on my mind um Minnesota last year video just recently posted a prime example. We had one in front of us, Goblin. I was concerned. He, I, I'm pretty sure he saw when he pitched down. He saw us there. He didn't know what we were because we were just getting ready to sit down beside a tree, and he pitched down. I didn't know he was that close. Roosted that close. He was still in the tree, Goblin, when we were moving in closer. And I think he saw us there, and so he was a little leery. 
while we're working this bird, there's two across the valley just hammering. Every time I'd make a sound, they would gobble. The one in front of us just gobbled every you know, third or fourth time I made a sound. Hmm. And I told my buddy Aaron, I was like, man, let's let's leave this bird alone. Let's go after those. Those two over there are just hot. I mean, that's that's one reason I would abandon bird. If I know one okay. bird's hot and ready to die, it is a little easier to leave one that's 100 yards away and go after one that was a quarter mile away. Yep. That hot goblin bird. Um, it's, it's, it's tough overall. I mean, that situation made it easier for me to, to figure out. I thought we, he had seen us. So I knew he's going to be a little leery. It made it a little easier to leave him. Had he not seen us, I probably would have just tried to move around on that bird. We were still on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, I guess it, a lot of, uh, what happened prior or what's been happening will dictate that. Like I said, if there's one goblin hundred yards from me and he, I know he hasn't seen me. And maybe he's just he's just not budging, and there's some over here gobbling off in the distance. I probably will stay with him longer, just moving around, see what I can do with him before I totally abandon them and go after the other ones. Um, a lot of times they probably have hens with them; they're just gobbling, wanting you to join them. Hmm. It's a tough decision, though. But uh, I'm I'm more of a I'm more uh, apt to uh, go after a hot goblin bird that's, that that. It's in the mood. It seems like he's in the mood to die, but yeah, I guess that about, that's the best way I can describe it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So when you, when you, when it seems like there's a legitimate better option, yeah, then you're going to start yeah, thinking there you about, go. <laughs> start thinking about leaving that I'm one. I'm sure none of them are ready to die, but uh, <laughs> it's a better option for me. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, you're getting ready to head out here in the next couple of weeks, right? Start heading all around and, and doing a lot of hunting. Uh, you know, public land is, uh, is, um, a resource that's there for all of us. You do most of your hunting on public land. Is that right? So, uh, for those guys who maybe haven't ventured out onto public land, uh, for one reason or another, uh, can you give just a, a quick couple of reasons that guys should give it a shot this spring? Oh, can I tell them just to stick to private land? <laughs> <laughs> that's hey, that's fine with me. I'll tell you why I hunt public land, and then I guess yeah, they great. can make their judgment. That's great. Um, the reason I hunt public land, number one, um, I have nothing against private land hunting. I guess uh, you know I've gotten permission to hunt private land in the past, and I guess I've had I've had a lot of good experiences on that, and I've had some bad experiences, like where you need to call before you come over check in that's kind of one of the biggest things i hate having to call ahead of time mm. because i'm more yeah. of a spur of the moment person sure you know i'm hunting this side oh i'm gonna run over there in the morning or it's 10 o'clock at night and i'm like oh man we need to for whatever reason i can't go to this spot i need to go to another spot maybe if i go to the private land but it's 10 o'clock at night i can't call him now and wake him yeah. up so I guess the public land just gives me more freedom to move about as I please without checking in with anybody or worry about, Oh, they gave so-and-so permission. Also, um, I can just hop around. Uh, there's, there's plenty of opportunity here in the state or I'm in Minnesota, but over in the state of Wisconsin, where I hunt a lot, plenty of opportunity. The, the, the game is abundant. It seems there's plenty of public land here. And I know some people are like, Oh, that's not that much. You're you're blessed in Wisconsin with all the VPAs and the and the WMAs and the state forests and county forests and school property that uh, some of that you get to hunt. I mean, it's just a 
an enormous amount of public land, accessible land. And in Wisconsin, people are, are more apt to give you permission to turkey hunt private land uh, than down south. They won't, you won't even get, uh, they'll slam the door in your face down south. Yep. Uh, up here, yep. they don't seem to mind giving you permission to turkey hunt. Um, but with all that said, I just, I just enjoy the freedom of public land. And there's some of the public land up here can be just as maybe not just as good as private but it's pretty darn close mm-hmm. and uh so that's kind of the that's why i like it up here i like yeah. public land in general just so i can i don't have to ask people it's my it's our land you know i can that's come right. and go as i please that's right i like having a little bit more room to spread out yeah you know no, uh, that's too because not being restricted by 40 acres or you know 100 acres even yeah um, i although i do love some smaller tracks most private land you get access to is going to be 100 acres 400 acres you know uh something like that even smaller you know 60 acres where public's going to be thousand acres twenty thousand acres you know forty thousand acres and so you can especially if you're on an out-of-state hunt like i am it gives you a chance to look at one track of property drop a bunch of pins where you think you might find birds or deer whatever you're there to hunt and uh and just roam you know Mm. freedom to roam a lot farther yep well, Shane, I've, I've taken up, I think, enough of your time at this point. But uh, one thing I do want to know, uh, what do you have on the docket for the season? You said uh, results for Mississippi came out. Yeah, Is I didn't that... draw anything for Mississippi. So okay. I'm going to uh, just draw. I'm going to just be hunting the general public like like always, it seems like. Yep. Um, they do have a lot of states have quota hunts. Florida had their lottery or their drawing a while back. I didn't draw anything there either. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's not it's not bad. I mean, quotas definitely make uh, some of these quota hunts do make, make it a, a little bit uh, uh, better experience. I should say a little less hunting pressure. Yep, a better a better chance at killing one. But it's not the end of the world. It's not my first time hunting just general public, obviously. But anyway, um, the results from Mississippi came out today and I didn't draw. So I'll be I got to pick which regular public track on my hunt and i mean some of these quotas you can hunt them after the first two days anyway it opens to the general public you just don't get first crack at the turkeys okay um so i got to choose where i'm going in mississippi and then i'm off to florida uh then i had come back home to the midwest and and i i work a full-time job but i i get all my 40 hours in on the weekend so i, I come home and i work a three days uh three twelves nice get paid for 40 and then go hunt for four days so nice. a lot of people think I do this for a living. No, I do this for fun, <laughs> but it's a lot of freaking work. Um, anyway, I come home, work for a weekend, and then I, I'm going to hunt the Midwest. I'm a, I think I'm going to take my recurve out to Nebraska and try and kill one of the recurve. Uh, hunt South Dakota's uh, archery also. Uh, I have some gun tags for both states. Uh, go back during gun season. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce around New- uh, nebraska and south dakota for mo- much of april okay i'm gonna hit iowa minnesota wisconsin obviously i'm going to michigan i'm waiting for the draw results to come out from michigan to see if i drew a tag for that june that week of june season um because that, that'll finish out my season yeah is that the latest one in the country their season yeah, there's a main goes to like the third or fourth or something like that okay but uh michigan goes to the seventh so i think it's the long yeah it's the longest in the they just added that last year it was the first time they added that yeah yep. um if i draw that tag i'm thinking about trying to fit in pa go to pa and then hit michigan on the way back home for yep. that final stretch of the season 
so that's that's pretty much my season right there. I've thought about hitting Wyoming. That's I have I have about nine core states or definite states on my hunt. I guess be Mississippi, Florida, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Nebraska, and South Dakota. Seven states I'm for surely going to hunt, okay. and then uh, two or three add-ons possibly. Yeah, there you go. Gotcha, gotcha. Sounds like a full spring. Another fun grueling spring turkey season. <laughs> the the difficulty is part of the fun though, right? Yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Sleeping in my truck and eating gas station food nights alone on the middle of nowhere in south dakota <laughs> it's hard to beat yeah it is it's fun though looking back at those memories i wouldn't trade it yeah absolutely well shane thanks for uh thanks for your time where can folks go and uh learn more about you get access i'm looking forward to getting on your uh your website here and uh, checking out this kit that you've put together as I try to get ready for the spring. So what's your website? Where can we find you on YouTube or social media? So uh, my website is callingallturkeys.com. And then my YouTube channel is just Shane Simpson. If you have trouble finding it, it should be like one of the uh, first results, top of the page. Um, I have playlists on there for turkey hunting. It's called Calling All Turkeys. I have a playlist for the deer track and it's called the Cali Chronicles. And then I have some deer hunting on there. It's called Public Land Whitetails. Um, Instagram, Shane Simpson hunting. Um, it'll be Shane underscore Simpson underscore hunting, I guess. Um, Facebook, Shane Simpson. I also had a call on all turkeys Facebook page. I'm on TikTok, Shane Simp Zenith, I guess is my username. Oh, or man. Just type in, yeah. TikTok. Just, yeah. Catman taught me in that. If you don't know who <laughs> Catman, he has a yeah. YouTube channel, Catman Outdoors. Uh, he's like, man, I can't believe you don't have a TikTok. It's, you like to put all those funny things on Facebook and stuff. And I was like, I haven't even looked into it. I went on there. I spent the first day. It was so I had, I don't know. I got addicted to it. it as the first day I was just <laughs> looking at these little clips on there. And I was like, man, I got to get off it. Thanks a lot, cat, man. You done got me suckered into this. And so <laughs> I've got some tip videos on there. Some little short one minute tip videos. Also yep. got, got them on my YouTube channel, but those are the areas you can find me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I would highly recommend uh, folks get on there and check you out. I know, uh, like I mentioned earlier, this was really my, this past year was my first year, uh, doing a lot of turkey hunting and, uh, pretty much everything I knew came from you, from Catman, and from watching the guys over at THP. So I certainly appreciate that resource that you're putting out there for everybody. Uh, it's something we should, I think all the listeners should head over and check out. So, uh, thanks a lot for your time. Maybe we'll check back in at some point later in the season, maybe after turkey season goes out and hear how things went. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on and I enjoyed the conversation. And that is a wrap. Big thanks to Shane for coming on the episode today. Go over to his YouTube page, subscribe, watch his turkey videos, learn what you can about turkey hunting there. Also, be sure to follow along with him this fall and the Cali Chronicles as he and his dog Callie track wounded deer uh, in the upper Midwest and Midwest in general. Um, also, you can head over to his website, callingallturkeys.com, to get the things that you need for turkey hunting. So, big thanks to Shane. Also, big thanks to you guys for tuning in to another episode. We want to be bringing you guys quality content, and it helps out a lot. If you will check out our Instagram page, follow us there, let us know what you think of these episodes. Also, subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation podcast network so that you can be the first to know when new episodes like this and other relevant outdoor content drop. 
That's all I've got for today. Looking forward to our next podcast. We're going to be talking with Mr. Patrick Durkin, who if you are from the state of Wisconsin and you're an outdoorsman and you haven't heard of Patrick Durkin, wow, I really don't know what to say. Um, But you're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be a good one. Until then, get outside and enjoy. Take advantage of all the awesome opportunities that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen. Sportsmen.